Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, as you already know, today's episode is actually going to air on Halloween. So no doubt many of our listeners will be donning their costumes this evening for a little bit of trick-or-treating with their kids. <laughs> yeah, Shonda's actually, he does not know this yet, but him and I will be dressing up as trolls and troll onesies tonight. <laughs> <laughs> We're going trick-or-treating with my nephews. But I think if you're an adult, you celebrated maybe this past weekend. I've been really enjoying everyone's post. Miley Cyrus has been keeping me quite entertained with all the Miley Cyrus costumes. People are actually very creative this time of year. Yes, they certainly are, which is actually something we talked about on our full-length episode earlier this week when we chatted with Lucy Clayton and Dr. Benjamin Wild about the history of Halloween costumes, as well as fancy dress balls. So you can check that out if you haven't already. But in keeping with this theme of fancy dress, aka what we call in the United States costumes, we thought we would continue this discussion of fancy dress and take a look at what was one of the most spectacular, over-the-top fancy dress balls that America has ever seen. Yes, and this specific topic stems from the fact that one of the fancy dress ensembles worn to the Vanderbilt Ball of 1883, which is today's topic, well, it's currently on view in the exhibition Paris Capital of Fashion at the Museum at FIT, which is up until January 2020. Yes, and we will get to this specific dress here in a bit, but let's just let it suffice to say that I overheard a lot of chatter about this piece being included in the show when I was at the opening for it. So that kind of means that our fashion history mystery today doesn't necessarily come from one single person, but rather a bit of buzz surrounding this really glorious example of one of Charles Frederick Worth's costume designs. Worth was, of course, the subject of our very first episode address, but we did not speak in too much detail about his fancy dress designs. So we are very excited to have the opportunity to chat today about one that April and I actually both saw in person when we went to the exhibition in New York City. Yeah. So before we get to the dress itself, I think we need to establish the scene a bit. And I found this simply smashing article in the April 21st, 1883 issue of Harper's Bazaar that covered the Vanderbilt Ball, which spanned the late night and early morning hours of March 26th going into March 27th of 1883. And Cass, the prose is so lovely in this article. I think we should just quote it at length (laughs) because we, we can't really do much better than this anonymous journalist who who clearly attended the event. And we don't know if this person was strictly press or if they were perhaps a socialite who also wrote for fashion and society columns, which was an entire thing in the 19th century. But really, you know, at that time, like who better in the know than the women who, who lived that lifestyle, which is a lot of times why they were those columnists. But would you like to start with the article? Because it's, it's super fun. 
It would be my honor. So this piece in Harper's Bazaar begins, quote, It is rarely the case that entertainment is so wildly talked about and so long and so eagerly anticipated as was this, a ball which had even invited a rumor so disagreeable, even so frightful, as that the communists meant to attack the house and to sack it with its immeasurable wealth of jewelry, bric-a-brac, silver and gold, and object d'art on this eventful evening. It is seldom that such entertainment goes off so serenely without accident and without a single untoward event as did Mrs. W.K. Vanderbilt's ball of March 26th, 1883. And it goes on saying, the guests on arriving at the white marble doorway on Fifth Avenue were told to order their carriages at four o'clock. All around the neighborhood, a black, dense mass of figures waited to see the guests alight. A large force of policemen kept back this crowd, which looked dangerous. Whether the great question of wealth versus poverty, which agitates all minds now, was upmost in their minds, or whether it was merely curiosity, one cannot say. It was a picturesque contrast, the cold, gloomy night without, the unrivaled light and luxury within. As one entered the spacious hall and was led by a powdered footman to the wide staircase, a sense of vastness overcame the gazer. It was like a Milan cathedral, this wilderness of white marble and stained glass. The broad staircase, like that in a feudal chateau, was wide enough for a troop of cavalry to ride up, and with its gradual ascent broken by frequent turns, it might even be ascended by horses. The ladies were shown into a grand state bedroom where a four-poster bed, just as one sees in palaces abroad or in the pictures of Lacroix, out of this apartment opened a fairy-like dressing room, all mirror, painted over with apple blossoms with an alabaster tub fit for Undine to take her swim in. Beyond this room, another magnificent apartment opened where sat a little nun writing a regular bonsoir de bon secours, which is kind of a French phrase meaning good sister that does good deeds. And the article goes on to say that she was very pretty and her black robes, a contrast to the gay and glittering dresses which constantly arrived. Here gathered Mary Stewart, Lady Washington, Mother Goose, Mary Quite Contrary, Carolina Cornaro, a.k.a. the Queen of Cyprus during the Renaissance, a gypsy, and all the characters of the opera Bouffe, ready to go down when the time came. It was 11 o'clock before the company descended to the superb French drawing room, a room a la Louise Cannes, where Miss Vanderbilt and Lady Mandeville sat to receive their guests. End scene. Yes, and get this cast, those guests that they just mentioned, there were more than 1,000. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, Yeah. So basically months earlier, invitations had been hand-delivered by quote-unquote footmen attired in livery to 1,200 of the best and brightest stars of the American social scene. And they were entreated to attend this fancy dress ball, which was hosted by Alva Vanderbilt, who was the wife of railroad tycoon William Kissam Vanderbilt. And this party quickly became, as noted by Harper's Bazaar, you know, they said this earlier, the most eagerly anticipated event of the season. And and there were all sorts of rumors in the press about the guest list, as well as like the preparation of some of the most sumptuous fancy dress costumes that America had ever seen. So the event was really on the tip of everyone's tongue at this time. And and that's why that, you know, these crowds were gathering outside to watch the guests arrive. 
which was, of course, exactly Mrs. Vanderbilt's aim. The entire ball was contrived as a means of breaking the glass ceiling of the list of 400, a ranking of the 400 most prominent individuals in New York's social set. So while the Vanderbilt name drips with connotations of wealth and luxury today, at this time, the family was really considered too nouveau riche, too newly rich, to be considered part of the upper echelons of American society, which really revered old money and tradition. The Vanderbilts, of course, as April kind of mentioned, famously amassed their fortune in shipping and railroads during the 19th century. Yes. So while they were one of the wealthiest families in America, they were also kind of, you know, quote unquote, new kids on the block. And New York society was like, we're not exactly sure about you guys yet. (laughs) But this ball really changed that tune for sure. And the article in Harper's Bazaar goes on to describe the themed quadrilles, which opened to the ball. And um, some of the younger socialites were asked if they would create dance performances quadrilles, wherein four couples engaged with a themed performance of steps for the amazement and delight of all the other remaining guests. And there were five quadrilles that were performed um, that opened the ball with the themes of hobby horse, mother goose, opera bouffe, which was like a comedic form of opera based on parody, Dresden China, as in the tableware, (laughs) and also star were performed that opened the festivities. However, as the evening of revelry turned from night to morning as Harper Bazaar continues, all this glory was human and needed supper. Ascending to the grand staircase of the third story, a banqueting hall was discovered in a large room called the gymnasium. Here the walls were lined with roses and the most fabulous flora display made this room as redolent of nature as the lower rooms have been in art. Catered by the chefs of the legendary New York restaurant Delmonico's, which still exists, I might add, the Vanderbilt staff served nearly 1,200 people dinner, Cass. And I've I've worked in a restaurant before where we did um, 1,000 covers over the course of like seven hours, but serving more than 1,000 people all at once is no small feat, as one can imagine. And Harper's again notes, quote, supper was luxurious in the extreme, and it was long after daylight before the superb chateau of Mr. W.K. Vanderbilt had been cleared of its motley troop of late-night revelers. It was the best-ordered, most cool, delicately lighted, and enjoyable ball ever given in New York, and for magnificence, quite unprecedented, incredible to the host and hostess. And by cool here, of course, the writer surely is referring to temperature, not the level of hipness, because the latter meaning was not quite in mainstream parlance in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know what was not actually cool, April, as we've kind of alluded to, was this shocking amount of money spent on this Vanderbilt ball. The press estimated the late night revelries cost approximately $250,000 at the time, which is equivalent to the modern day $6 million. Yikes. So (laughs) they spent approximately $1.7 million in today's money on champagne for the party and $300,000 on flowers alone. Yeah, and this really speaks to the wealth divide at the time between the haves and the have-nots. You know, these quote-unquote robber baron industrialists like the Vanderbilt family had amassed unfathomable fortunes on the backs of the labor classes and In addition to that, there was actually no income tax at this time. So this wealth divide was clearly an issue on 
you know, people's minds, as Harper's Bazaar noted, despite also the simultaneous interest in, you know, what the wealthy are doing and wearing narrative that was both promoted and vilified by the heiress press. And and if you think about it, Cass, that narrative hasn't really changed so much today. People today are still fascinated by the celebrity lifestyle. You know, there's entire magazines and television shows that are devoted to this exact topic. Yes, and perhaps it's just part of human nature to be curious about how the so-called other half lives. I mean, you and I have certainly done podcasts on this subject, and I did just mention my current fascination with Miley Cyrus costumes. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, speaking of curiosity, is this the point where we discuss the fancy dress ensemble we mentioned at the top of the show? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So the ensemble in question is the legendary electric light dress that was created by none other than Charles Frederick Worth, you know, uh, just the father of haute couture. So it's it's clearly super casual. <laughs> clearly. Worn by Mrs. Cornelius Vanderbilt II, born Alice Claypool Gwen in 1845, the 38-year-old Alice commissioned the House of Worth to design her ensemble for the event. And this was actually not out of the ordinary, right, April? I mean, fancy dress balls were a popular form of entertainment during the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. And Worth, as the then hottest designer of the late 19th century, was called upon by his clientele to create not only their everyday wardrobes, but also their costumes for fancy dress balls. Mm-hmm. And Alice's decision to attend the ball as electric light is perhaps a little bit more poignant than one today might realize, because just three years earlier, so in 1880, Thomas Edison established the Edison Illuminating Company, which later became known as General Electric. And the sole purpose of the company was to deliver electricity nationwide, specifically um, here what we're talking about in New York City. Yep, one of Edison's first successes actually in this was a power station in Lower Manhattan on Pearl Street. Yeah, which is my old hood. Do you remember when I lived in the apartment on Wall Street, Cass? I do. Yeah, so the Pearl Street station was just a few blocks away. So the building that I lived in for many, many years was an early specimen of architecture that was built with electricity hardwired in in the 1890s, which is kind of cool, right? Yes, very interesting. Um, You know, this idea of electricity powering one's home was something we obviously take for granted today, but at the time, it was wildly controversial. So the Vanderbilt family was an early financial backer for Edison's endeavors to build an electric grid in New York, specifically Mr. William Vanderbilt, the host of the Vanderbilt Ball. He was all in, and he asked Edison to wire his parlor with light bulbs supported by an electric generator in the basement. But in one of Edison's failures, crossed wires behind a tapestry in the room ignited, creating a soon-to-be-squelched fire. However, Alva Vanderbilt, the wife and hostess of the Vanderbilt Ball, was not amused at this point. (laughs) She demanded that the electric generator and all the electricity be stripped of her home for reasons of safety. And then enter Alice, appearing as electric light at Alva's ball not much long after. Yeah, and I have to kind of say, like, was she was was that like a little bit of a dig at <laughs> Alva? I don't know. They were they were sisters in law, and they were around the same age, so I don't know, maybe. But uh, the style and silhouette of Alice's dress is very much in keeping with the 1880s corseted waist. You know, it's facilitating the bosom to be pushed up and out to there. Basically, it's on full display. And the skirt all the way to the floor, if not trailing behind for the evening. But 
The main genius of this dress is actually the embellishment. Oh, absolutely. You have zigzags and flecks indicating movement that really define this dress. And all this is done by way of threads wrapped in actual silver. Silver was, of course, costly. So while some of her fellow companions at the ball wore their family jewels in the form of necklaces, bracelets, and tiaras, Alice literally had her wealth sewn into her costume, which was undoubtedly just worn for this one night. Mm-hmm. And the off-the-shoulder dress and bodice of really kind of pale, pale gold reveals a deep sapphire underskirt when it's uh, viewed from the back. But the entire front of the gown and the shoulder embellishments are encrusted with silver and gold embroidery. And the deep, rich blue velvet of the underskirt kind of like sets the entire thing in contrast to each other. And and we have to remember what the silver and the gold probably would have looked like, you know, being all shimmering and sparkling at the time under gaslight. Because also, in addition to Alva's objections, apparently some of the older invitees to the ball refused to go to the Vanderbilt mansion if it was going to be lit up by electricity. So they were afraid. <laughs> Which is pretty interesting when you think of how dangerous the gas lights were of this time too. But right. um, you know, change is always scary. But you know, this kind of this fear of light is what makes, or this fear of electricity, I should say, is what makes Alice's costume choice such a statement that many do not readily get today. One, electric light was this cutting-edge technology of the day. And two, her family was actively funding the electric grid in New York at the time. Yeah, so the dress is a specific reference to the intersection of technology and pop culture of her own day, um, also an endeavor funded by her family. And it also happens to be have been designed by the hottest fashion designer of the moment. You know, can you imagine, Cass, if if top designers today were open to accepting orders for, for Halloween costumes? <laughs> <laughs> I think the fashion system is a very different animal today. <laughs> yes, but designers, if you're listening, please consider incorporating custom costume designs into your already busy schedule. <laughs> That does it for us this week, Dress listeners. May you consider adding a little electricity into your outfit next time you get dressed. And if you are in the New York City area, that light dress is on view in FIT's Paris Capital of Fashion until January 4th of next year. So be sure and check it out if you're in the area. Fashion-friendly reminder, we still have space available for our June 2020 Dressed Fashion History Tour of Paris. So head on over to likemindstravel.com for more information. And we also hope you'll join us on Tuesday for our full-length episode. And if you love Dressed, just a reminder that we have super fun merch, t-shirts, bags, stickers, magnets, and so many more items available to purchase at tpublic.com forward slash dress. And because we are advocates for sustainability, all dress merch is not created until you order it. And our totes are also partially made of upcycled plastic. So thank you. Um, We will see everybody on Tuesday. And thank you, of course, always to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes this show possible each week. Catch you Tuesday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your favorite shows.